Hello, welcome back. The 831 Podcast, episode 55. Um, last one got uh, with Ken. Lots of views, listens, and lots of great feedback. Still really disappointed with the amount of shares, so guys. I mean, like, all I ask is that you just put it on your social media. Like, that is literally all I'm asking is that you post on social media and say, Hey, guys, I love the 831 Podcast. Get it on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, wherever you listen. Like, that is literally all that I'm asking. And it's not even for me. Like, it's nice for my guests to be tagged in things and have to share them and push them forward. It lets them know that people are listening. And they message me back and like, how many people listened. I'm like, 850 people listened in the first 30 hours. And I had two shares. And it's, you know, like... You, you guys do what you want, I guess. Like, you know, you, you do it how you want. But it is all that I ask from any of you is please just share. Just put a link to it, you know. Just if a 100 people did that and 20 people knew, listened to it, our audience grows, right? We can get more and more people listening, um, more and more people willing to come on. And I can just do more of them. So please just share it. Just, you know, just. Post a little picture or a clip and just say, hey, I love listening to the 831 podcast. Go listen, bump, 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 etc. So please share it. That's all that I ask. Um, I understand that if it's on YouTube, um, I don't add this, so I will put it up on YouTube. But we don't get many viewers on there anyway. It's mostly audio. Anyway, that is that. Um, as always, sponsored by, um, I'm going to bring in a new one. XC Mag, Cross Country Magazine UK. Um, yeah, I subscribe to Cross Country Magazine. I have always subscribed to them. Uh, sometimes I don't really read much. I flick through and look at some articles, and then other times I have amazing articles that I have to read and share, and they have a lot of on- online content as well. So, Cross Country Magazine are a sponsor of the podcast. Trojan Fitness, Trojan Nutrition Bristol will forever be a sponsor of the podcast, as we know. Ridgeway Family Fitness. And EJ Hair Clinic, Emma, please hit Emma up, tell her you listen to the podcast, and tell her you heard the shout out. Okay, so today's guest, um, I am over the moon, uh, Dr. Nick Fox. Um, Nick Fox, when I was growing up and I was into falconry, was like a, a figurehead of the sport. He had DVDs, he had books. He was well known. You couldn't go anywhere. But Nick Fox was like the guy, you know. And his videos, like Northumberland Crow Falcons and his books. And so I, it was everything to me to, to read and watch Nick Fox stuff. So to have him on the podcast all these years later, um, I'm over the moon. I've met Nick a couple of times and we met at Voli and I mentioned doing this. And he, and he seemed really keen. And he came on and he was brilliant. He was just brilliant fun. So... I really enjoyed doing the podcast. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to it. Um, hopefully there's lots of you listening who aren't even falconers. It's just great for conservation. So, um, yeah, I absolutely love doing it. Hopefully you will too. I've got a couple more lined up, which will be coming very soon. But in the meantime, this is episode 55, Dr. Nick Fox. Okay, Nick, thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Wesley. Um, it's been a 
Yeah, a little bit of, of task getting this one together, but we, uh, finally, all, all my fault, I'll add, but finally we're here, we're, we're, we're together, we're talking. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear you're at least vertical with three slip discs. Yeah, we're get, I'm getting there. I'm somewhat somewhat reclined, but we're getting there. We're nearly upright. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nick, I uh, I wanted. I've obviously wanted to speak to you for a while, and you and I uh, got together at Voli, and I said to you um, about coming on, and thankfully you you said yes. Yeah, so honestly, thank you very much. Uh, that's all right. Um, uh, this is the first. No, no, I did do a little podcast for the Heritage Trust. Otherwise, this is the first podcast I've ever done. Okay. Um, now, you sent me through like a uh, uh, sort of a biography almost of the things that you've done. And it's, too, I mean, it's it's far too extensive to, to list off. And we will touch on things throughout that as we go through. Um, and I was even surprised to see stuff on there that I didn't realise you've had involvement with outside of falconry and your input on general conservation of uk wildlife and uh even worldwide wildlife it it did surprise me slightly your involvement is not just falconry you've had a, a big involvement in conservation wildlife in a, a plethora of different things yeah well that's that's actually my main job if you like although i'm i don't actually have a job um i i trained as a zoologist and or my main thrust hasn't been falconry as such, it's been conservation. Mm -hmm. So in the 70s, while I was doing my zoology degree at St Andrews, um, we reintroduced the goshawk. Wow. And that was done through a, a group. Um, Dr Robert Kenwood was involved, the British Falconers Club was involved, and we we tried a three-pronged approach with goshawks. We we got some in as passage birds and just released them. I think that's the best way to do it. We also got in irises, which we hacked out uh, in Scotland, uh, and which was one of the jobs I was doing. And also we trained some birds, and once they were hunting well, we released them. And I did a male then. So the goshawks got going in the 70s, and as you know, now we've got goshawks all over the place. Lots of people are killing them um, illegally, but the, the old goss is holding its own, and we've got our goshawks back. Um, so the shooters are not impressed. <laughs> uh, I'm a bit so I'm a bit surprised to hear that, Nick. I didn't really, I'd never really understood that the goshawk was maybe at a point where it needed reintroduction. It was at one point numbers were really low, were they? No, no, it's completely gone. Oh wow! No, when I was a young falconer, there were no goshawks in Britain. Wow! They were exterminated mainly by the Victorian keepers. Okay, just to preserve pheasant shoots and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so until the 60s, there was the odd goss floating around, lost falconers' birds, but um, there was no proper goshawk population. So we started from scratch. And nowadays, you can imagine doing that would be hell because you have to do feasibility studies, risk assessments, veterinary risk assessments. Then you'll get all sorts of groups opposing it. Of the um, the RSPB types were saying 
Oh, yeah, the falconers, you've only introduced them because you want them to take for falconry. You get it from all directions. But yes. we didn't worry. We put we put out goshawks and um, some of it was dead easy and some of it was not successful. It was harder. But the end result was we now have goshawks back and um, and falconers did that. Don't let anybody tell you that um, this was some RSPB thing. We just went on and we did it. And it was before it was before all the social media thing. People suddenly found there were gossips around. Yeah, that's uh, it's it, one of the kickbackers. I get you know, just like everybody, you get the the kickback from the the aunties who don't really they have no understanding of what it is that we do and no understanding that uh, a high percentage of falconers especially i consider myself quite a traditional falconer because of the way that i learned and we have a big emphasis on conservation not just flying and hunting with birds of prey and lots of people won't understand that and now to hear you say that the the fact that a lot of the people who are listening who aren't falconers who have maybe spotted a goshawk is because of the the work that yourself and other falconers did to reintroduce them yeah yeah and we're very happy we've got gosses uh, then in the, well, then I was in New Zealand working on New Zealand falcons, but back in UK, when I got back, the red kite, because we're in West Wales, the mm. red kite was hanging on, there were 25 pairs left in, in Wales and all the rest had been exterminated. And we had Gurkha troops monitoring the nests, wardening the nests because of egg thieves and that kind of thing. So... I went to the kite committee and I said, well, what's happening was even the nests that were successful, they only got one chick. They lay wow. three eggs, but they get one chick. Yeah. So I said to the kite committee, OK, why don't you take two of the eggs, replace them with dummies so they've got three eggs, let them carry on, bring two eggs to me. And we'll hatch them out, rear them, and when it's when they're ready for fledging, we'll put them back again. Mm -hmm. And I showed them round how we were breeding falcons here and all that kind of thing. So we did that. Uh, we got all the different licenses and field workers. Yolo Williams, I don't know if you know him, he's a TV presenter now. Uh, and Dee Doody, they were our tree climbers. And they started bringing kite eggs to us, I think, in 86, 87. And we did research on incubation of kite eggs. We tried different things, bantams. Um, kite eggs stink. I can always oh, yeah. tell when, when kite eggs have been delivered, I can always tell. I can smell they've been brought into the building. Um, yeah, they stink. Um, but... Anyway, so we started hatching them out and I had a couple of imprint buzzards who would rear them for me. And um, I don't know if you, you know, well, you must know kites and eagles and, and so on. They have um, Cain and Abel battles. Yes. And if you're not, if you're not careful, what the bigger chicks will eat, beat the hell out of the smaller ones. Yeah. So, but... The, the old imprint buzzards 
they just sit on them. <laughs> and then they get off, they tank them up with food, and then they sit on them again. So we didn't get any of that. But the problem then was I'd ring them up, I'd ring up Yolo and say, right Yolo, uh, these, these kite chicks, this next batch, they're ready to go back to the nest. So they came down, collected the chicks, went back to the nest. Of course, the parents had got one chick from the one egg mm -hmm. and they put all of their energies into that one chick. Yolo climbs the tree, puts our two chicks next to it. Our chicks are twice the size of the <laughs> chicks in the nest. Can't do it. Yeah. You just kill them. Yeah. So then we'd have to do like musical chairs to match sizes between kite nests. So the moral was that the kite in Wales was suffering from food stress. Even they were collecting like lamb's tails with the rubber rings still on, rotten. Yeah. Feed that to the chick, get an impacted crop, dead. Um, but anyway, we worked it out. And over the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, we hatched out and put out 53 kite chicks. So what happened then was after two or three years of doing this and people could see it was a success the rspb came in on it and um some of the rspb don't get me wrong are great people but some of them higher up can be awkward mm -hmm. oh we'll handle the publicity <laughs> and i mean i don't have a publicity machine here we just do stuff um so suddenly it became a great successful RSPB project and they made a film on it. They came down here and we hatched kites under on under camera in like a artificial nest so that it would cut in with the wild shots, all that kind of thing. Then I had to buy a copy of the film, 14 quid it cost me. <laughs> Which I thought, thanks, you know, you, you've got a few million yourselves. It wouldn't have been yeah. hard just to give me a copy of the film. Well, especially as the film wouldn't have been available without your help anyway. No, no. Yeah. But anyway, what happened then was people started, you see, the kite committee and most of the bird watchers, they don't feel safe unless they've got a pair of field glasses between them and the bird. Yeah. Okay. If you give them a kite egg, they... Uh, what do we do? <laughs> Terrified. Any hands-on work they have no experience of. And to this day, the RSPB do very little hands-on work with birds. So there's a kind of a skill gap. And it's only us falconers and breeders that have the hands-on experience. Um, but anyway, once we started doing egg manipulation and chick rearing with the kites, then people realised, well, actually, yeah, you can do that. And we showed them how to do it. And they started, we started then importing birds from Spain and Sweden, put them out in England and Scotland. And the first ones went to Stoken Church, Buckinghamshire, I think it is. And um, I, I had two spare Welsh chicks 
they had to go out and they hadn't got a nest to go to. So I put them in the old Cortina and drove over to Stoke and Church. <laughs> so the very first two of the English kites were actually Welsh ones and the rest were Spanish ones. And so over the years with the red kites, as you know, they had more and more releases all over the place. Yeah. Now we've got kites in most of Britain now. Yeah. Although they're funny how they can be quite conservative where they go to. Um, it's only this year I've seen them um, actually in Bristol. I mean, I've seen them on the outskirts when I'm out hunting, um, but now literally, you know, on the on the outskirts of the main parts of Bristol, you'll see kites regularly now. And that was just the the passage down that M4 corridor from both sides, I guess. And now we're at a point where you know they've met really in Bristol, and there's many that I see now. Well, Wesley, be careful, okay? Shakespeare wrote, when the kite builds, look to lesser linen. They'll nick your smalls off the washing line <laughs> to line the nest. That's why the eggs smell so much. Oh, yeah. I'll invest in a tumble dryer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the kites are doing fine. So I dropped off the kite committee then because everybody was getting into it and they were doing computer modeling and big grants and tourism and all of that. But the main thing was we got the kites back, so that's another species. Um, then, um, about 10 years ago, um, we started with beavers. Mm -hmm. And I got a pair from a friend uh, called Derek Gow down in Devon. And we bred them here on the farm and we've bred them ever since on the farm. We have three or four families normally. Breavers have to be kept separate. You have to keep families completely separate. Yeah. Otherwise they fight. Yeah, they're very territorial, right? Yes, yes. Um, but so then we've supplied a number of projects with beavers. Um, and uh, <laughs> that's another saga. <laughs> that is another saga, beavers, right? Um, so then about eight years ago, I applied to Natural Resources Wales for a license to reintroduce beavers to Wales. Mm -hmm. You may have heard all the goings on in Scotland with beavers and in uh, Devon with beavers, but there was nothing really in Wales. The ministers, um, in the Welsh Assembly, they were they were making all the right noises. Yes, yes, we need beavers. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But the actual administrators in Natural Resources Wales didn't want to make any decisions at all. And the farmers, and, and I've been an NFU member for probably 40 years, um, they were against it and I went to see them and they didn't realise that beavers were vegetarian. Um, they assumed that they were like otters, I guess, did they? Yeah, but I mean, I'm a farmer myself and I, I sympathise because we have been over a barrel on um, badgers and TB. Mm -hmm. yeah. I haven't kept cattle now for years because there's TB all around the place. Yeah, And, and farmers are being pilloried in both directions, badger culling and cattle culling. 
So the, the farmers didn't want another badger problem. So they, you know, their attitude is, um, what's the point of beavers? We're getting on quite well without them. Yeah. Uh, that, so NRW procrastinated. We had meetings. They wanted updating. They wanted a veterinary risk assessment, which cost me eight grand. Uh, then they wanted me to survey the entire river catchment where the release would be to do hydrological studies. And then they said, well, we can't issue a license unless you can prove you've got the funds to do this release. But then there's a, a grant system for environmental good works. So I applied for that. And then they said, oh, you've just missed it by a couple of points as a scoring system. So I reapplied the next year addressing those points and uh, got even lower score. And then they said, we can't give you any money until you've got a license. Oh, so then you're like catch 22. Well, I can't get a license. Catch 22 and they're in cahoots, you see. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because none of the none of those people wanted to be in the hot seat. Yeah, Is it, it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a resource an issue in that they wanted to keep the money and not give money away for something new then. It was no, literally, they, they didn't want to put their head on the block. Yeah. Well, they're giving it away to people digging ponds and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, we've got we've got about 26 ponds here on the farm. Um, about about 22 years ago, turn of the century, um, I decided to build a lake. It took three years to dig. Wow. It's 350 meters long. And it has a family of beavers on it now. And beavers dig their own ponds. They make their own ponds for you. So at least half the ponds on the farm are actually beaver ponds. Wow. And they're full of wildlife. I was down there yesterday and there's a kingfisher there. Um, uh, the beavers will keep the water level even in the drought. And they've been really good for wildlife. But anyway, after about three or four years of bashing around with this license application, it was quite clear that they were just giving me the runaround. And I'm a scientist and I knew what they were trying to get out of me wasn't science, it was politics. Yeah. You know, um, if you were going to do a survey of a river catchment to see if the beavers would pollute it, first you'd have to do three years of um, surveys to get your baseline data yeah and so on and i wasn't going to do all of that all of that research has been done long ago in many countries and wales is the last country in europe to do its beavers um, so anyway i withdrew the license application i gave the application to the um welsh wildlife trusts but they still haven't applied. This is some years now um, because they've just been given the run around the whole time. Yeah, 
It's, I mean, so, so I spend a lot of time in Wales because I paraglide there a lot. I have a lot of friends who um, fish in Wales, and there's obviously a lot of uh, controversy about polluted river systems in Wales and stuff, and that's ongoing um, constantly each year. And uh, a good friend of mine who you'll probably know, Falconer Nigel King, he was driving through Wales the other day, and he literally rang me to remark about the lack of wildlife in comparison to when you drive through the UK. And it seems that a lot of that now, which uh, which I wouldn't have known before talking to you, there's probably a massive amount of bureaucracy. That's the reason you would, you would assume it's hunting and you would assume that it's over farming or any of those things. But in actuality, it's probably just simply bureaucracy and people not wanting to go out there and say, well, no, we need repopulation. We need to reintroduce this. We need to redo. And, by simply reintroducing beavers into a river system, they're only going to, I would imagine, they would only survive in a healthy river system. So it means that everything around it is going to start, the ecosystem will itself start to regenerate, which would be a great thing. Well, the thing is, um, the NRW, the Welsh Natural Resources, um, Wildlife Resources, agency which is like natural england mm -hmm. um they wanted to make the whole of wales an nvz an nvz is a nitrate vulnerable zone okay um because of slurry from the dairy farms and some of the chicken farms mm. and so nfu have taken them to court and it's being reviewed if it goes through, it will probably cost every dairy farmer about £80,000 to upgrade their slurry storage. Wow. The dairy industry, as you know, is on its knees. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the whole of farming's on its knees. I've never yeah. seen it so ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, I've got sympathy there, but at the same time, people are putting slurry out and it's getting into the rivers yeah. and it's killing the rivers. Um, I used to farm in New Zealand and I still have a, a son out there who farms. Um, and in New Zealand, they'll have like um, a 20 metre uh, strip alongside a river course. Or, or it's a narrower one if it's a small drain ditch. Fenced off where you can't put fertilizer, slurry or cattle. But here, cattle can actually get into the river. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, so on the one hand, they're terrified of the power of the farmers. They also want to keep the, the farming and rural communities alive. Uh, and farming is in a hell of a state. They're, they're stopping the farm payments but they haven't said what they're replacing it with. Uh, the, what they've said so far is it will be elms in England um, and elms environmental land management um, is basically project based. Yeah, okay, so plant a wood, we'll give you money. Yeah. Well, the farmer can't live off that. You know, once that project's finished, he's ended up with a wood, he can't farm the wood um so that's not going to work so the uptake of the trials has been very low mm -hmm. yeah. so that's the 
um, for about a decade and they're really good. Um, we've put about 30% of the farm, which is about 300 acres. I've been buying land whenever I could because I started off with nothing. Um, we've got about 30% of the farm now in woodland uh, or ponds out of agriculture. But we've kept the best 70%, um, you know, for silage, sheep, because we've got to produce food for our country. Of course. We can't import all our food. Mm. But the beaver has a place. It's protected now in England and Scotland. Wales is going to muddle through. And what's going to happen in Wales is because nobody wants to make a decision, the beavers will find their way back. Yeah. yeah. One way or another. Yeah. They'll yeah, find exactly. their way back all over England. And um, yeah, in the next couple of decades, I think you'll find beavers will be over most of England. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm lucky in that I live in the southwest and it's been something that they've been focusing on in, for a while up through Devon, up into Somerset and even into the Avon now in Bristol. So we're lucky that you can, if you really wanted to, you could go out and you could spot beavers um, because there there is there has been a lot of work done here. But uh, so your conservation has been vast, as you've just explained. But where did it start for you? Like boyhood and stuff like growing up? Were you are you from a family who were very into, uh, you know, the outdoors? And, or was it just you were the rogue and you went off on that path? Um, more me the rogue. My family was a Victorian born in the century before last. OK. Now, Okay, um, and he was in both wars as a medic, um, but none of my family were into the outdoors, particularly, you know, we lived in the country, um, but when I was a week old, um, we got a new dog, a puppy, cost us a shilling, so we called him Bobby, <laughs> and he was a Springer, a Springer Cock Cross. And he lived in the And whenever I went out, Bobby would show me where things are. Um, so it's my main role. Just broke up there, Nick. How's the signal for you there for me? The Wi-Fi signal's gone a bit funny there, mate. Have you got me back there? Um, there we go. I've got you. Sorry? I, the signal went a bit funny there, mate. The Wi-Fi signal went a bit funny, but you're back now. Oh, okay. So anyway, um, so I grew up in the countryside. I got my first hawk when I was about 15. I had a good springer at that time. Wi-Fi issues again, mate. The signal's gone a bit on me there. The first year Haggard Goshawk. 
and uh, I lost her. That's the only bird I've ever lost. Um, just six days before doing my A level. So this was a, a female, a female gossip. Yeah, okay. yeah, I got her um, just as she was molting into adult plumage. Mm -hmm. So I lost her, um, and um, I got. I think I got. I can't quite remember. I got two A levels in the end. Yeah. Not very good. <laughs> I got into St Andrews on clearing. Uh, I didn't meet anybody with lower grades than I had. And nowadays you have to have like four grade AA levels. Yeah. Um, but it was different then. Um, so I went off to university and after I'd been there a year, I had, um, I brought I brought my own goshawk and sparrowhawk up with me, and dog, and found, got myself an old cottage and went downhill from there, really. <laughs> uh, got a hawk eagle and a lana over the years. Um, but you couldn't get peregrines in those days. Um, they were very hard to get. So were you... Were you longing for a, for a peregrine? Was your heart always no, with the long wing? I, I had, no, I had a haggard lana. And um, of course, there's no telemetry. Yeah. And the whole thing was a damn sight harder than it is now. Yeah, I can imagine. You don't put a hawk up. Uh, and you don't just put a hawk up and walk around casually like they do nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> You keep your little beady eye on the damn thing, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, and um, anyway, but I learned all sorts of things. And um, then I did teacher training and I also applied for a scholarship from the Draper's Company in London. Now, there's these the old London guilds, you know, they were very rich and they own bits of London and they give scholarships to this day. Mm -hmm. And there were 300 applicants for this scholarship and I came second, so I didn't get it. Oh. But then the guy that got it decided not to take it up. So I got it. Wow. And I, a Brown and Amadon Hawks uh, eagles and falcons of the world had just come out mm. and Leslie Brown he got his PhD at the same ceremony as I got my um, as my BSc mm -hmm. at Andrews and um, so they didn't have much to say about New Zealand falcons and one of the conditions of the scholarship was um, had to be a commonwealth country yeah. And this New Zealand falcon, they thought it was some kind of hobby and so on. Anyway, so I went out and did a PhD out there at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch in the South Island. And we rented a, a, a farm and um, I, I had to do shepherding and mustering, which is what you call cowboying in the West, um, yeah. to earn money. And my wife was dairying and shearing. 
Um, so I worked up in the Southern Alps on New Zealand falcons and started also captive breeding them. And New Zealand's a great place. If you get a chance, don't go there. <laughs> I, want left, I want it left empty. <laughs> I um, I have been given a chance a couple of times to go to New Zealand and I'm yet to go. I was uh, offered a bit of work there ages ago by a guy. Uh, he um, had a TV show for a while called The Lion Man. And uh, he had like lions and tigers and stuff. And because... I'd be considered a master falconer and I had eagles. He was keen on me coming there to help him establish some bird of prey, something in his, like, uh, he has like a safari park. Um, he's like, if we've got someone like you working here, we could get birds of prey on site and stuff. And I was thinking, I was considering it for a while, but it was right when I was competitively fighting. So I didn't actually go, but uh, now that I'm not allowed, I'm not. <laughs> well, the, pro the problem is, you can't take birds in or out of New Zealand. Yeah, sure. Um, so you can't take eagles in mm -hmm. or anything like that. There is a bird of prey centre in New Zealand called Wingspan up near Rotorua in North Ireland. Yeah. If if any falconers are listening, um, go and go to Wingspan and they'll tell you all about birds of prey. They're breeding falcons, the uh, barn owls. Self-introduced from Australia, um, and that's the place to go for up-to-date information. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I worked up in the Southern Alps for four seasons, four years. Um, while I was doing field work in the Southern Alps, I didn't see a human. No? No, not up in the hills. Wow. Not many people in those days. There's a lot more tracks now, um, but in those days there weren't there weren't many people. But the high country people are really nice people. Um, so what, what Nick? Sorry to cut you off there. What so? What made you become academic? Was it simply your love of now of birds of prey, or was it? Uh, something had clicked and you'd matured and you became a bit more academic or was it just simply you wanted or you felt that hang on I can do something with this with birds of prey here there's an area that needs addressing and it interests me I wish I could say that there was some master plan in my life <laughs> but you know when you're young you don't actually realize what possibilities there are out there in the world yeah. for a career and very few people have a career and go and do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, that's my issue with the with curriculum-based education, really, is that we, we funnel a lot of people who are destined for great things, maybe in zoology or, or something along those lines, or outdoor. Um, we, we funnel them down these paths and we tell them that they're not academic or they need to go and work on building sites because they can't achieve this. And I think we lose a lot of great minds or we stunt them maybe because we're not built to be curriculum based animals. We're, we're meant to find the things that we enjoy and we love and we pursue them. Yeah. Um, and academia is a case in point. Mm -hmm. If you're going to go far in academia, really, apart from a few real geniuses, 
most lecturers and professors have got there because they've learnt stuff and they spout it back out again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, I know that's a rather a cruel thing to say and people will be spluttering over their cafe lattes and stuff, but <laughs> um, you, your mind, you have, you know, say you're doing A-level, say you're at school, say you're at school or yeah. whatever, university, um, you, you you go to your lessons, your, your lectures, whatever it is, you have to read the books, you have to regurgitate what you're being told. Mm -hmm. And in a way, a mentoring in falconry is a similar thing. The, oh, a little wren has just come into the ivy by my window. Sorry. <laughs> um, and that means that you, you, they put you on a railway line and you're a carriage. You're not the engine, you're a carriage because you're, you're just learning stuff on that railway line. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have a mentor for falconry. Um, the first time I came in contact with falconers was when I was 18. And Philip Glazier opened his centre down at Newant. Newant, yeah. And I went there and helped them set it up. And um, uh, Glazier taught me how to hand swing a lure and that kind of thing. Wow. But mainly my mentors were the hawks themselves. There weren't many books in the 60s either. Uh, most of them were, were, were um, you know, hearting. They just started reprinting some of those old books. Yeah. Um, the trouble with, we, we've mentored a lot of people here and you get a person, as soon as they hit a problem with the hawk, and it doesn't matter whether it's falconry or some other walk of life, they come to their mentor. Oh, what do I do? And mm. the mentor says, do this, do that. So they do, and it's all hunky-dory, great. Yeah. Till they get to the next problem. Yeah. If you haven't got a mentor, and you hit a problem, you've got to sit down and think yourself for yourself. What yep. do I do? You know, and you can research it. You can look up books. You can ring around. And you can look at the animal, but you have to keep thinking for yourself. Yep. And also, what it allows you to do is, um, you, you can go to your mentor and you can get a cure, but it pre prevention's better than cure so understanding what mistakes you made that led to your problem yeah. is more important than getting the solution sometimes and you'll get mentors using words like correct yeah oh you've you've done it wrong that's not correct wow don't get me started <laughs> okay I mean, it's like riding a horse. Some people sit down with a leg each side facing the front, but not all of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, where were we? So, so after I did the PhD on New Zealand falcons, uh, I came back to Wales and I um, became a lecturer in wildlife illustration because I, I used to do a little bit of... Um, you know, I like doing a few bits of painting. I like designing 
houses and buildings, mm -hmm. um, especially I like building houses with turf roofs and things. Yeah. And I like, or I used to, I don't really do it anymore. I like designing and making saddles. Oh, wow. For the horses. Um, you know, I like, I like to do stuff. Um, whether it's like making hood designing or lake designing, it's all designing. Yeah. Um, no worries. We uh, these things happen when you use the internet, right? You get these little glitches. But on in the podcast world, it's it's no big deal. I'll just stitch the file back together, and people realise. I think that's the greatest thing because people realise it's real. It's not produced, you know. So. So we, we got struck by lightning on Thursday and all yep. phones and internet were knocked out and it's back now but only up in the office and my my um, laptop just crashed. Oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> we will salvage it. We will I'll stitch them both together and it'll be seamless by the end. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um right, so anyway, I'm all plugged in. It can't crash now. Okay. Um, where were we, Les um, Wesley? The New Zealand Falcon. Um, we were talking about why you uh, why you were pursuing the New Zealand Falcon as your PhD, maybe. Um, God, I can't remember now. <laughs> oh, I know. We were talking about um, mentors and things. Men yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. We got past the mentors and stuff, and. Uh, you said that you'd never had a mentor. You were sort of winging it on your own and you'd gone down to help Philip Glazier establish new one. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Are we on? Yeah, we're on. So, um, down at uh, Philip Glazier's, I think, um, of course, the British Falconers Club weren't too impressed, but... Um, Philip Glazier's had a big influence on falconry and falconry through the 70s and 80s was on the up. But when I got back from New Zealand, um, I had to go to the RSPB at Sandy in Bedfordshire um, representing the British Falconers Club. And the RSPB said to us, um, oh, we're, we're neutral on falconry, but we're against you taking birds from the wild. Mm. And we, we're going to stop you taking birds from the wild under license. So we went away and um, we realised that if we couldn't really get birds from the wild and at the same time they were bringing in things like quarantine so you couldn't just get crates in from um, Calcutta of assorted birds of prey anymore um, and they were going to strangle falconry simply by not having enough birds yeah so we resolved to um, captive breed and everybody started putting everything together and that's when Ronald Stevens and um, Johnny Morris they created um, 
Peregrine Thaker hybrid because they didn't have um, a pair of Peregrines or a pair of Thakers. They just had one Peregrine and one Thaker. Yeah. And um, so in 1981, the Wildlife and Countryside Act came out and it had a, a nasty little clause in it, and it still does, which says you're guilty unless you can prove you're innocent. Wow. And so straight away, people started claiming we weren't captive breeding, we we're just taking them from the wild, laundering them. Mm -hmm. And that's why we started breeding hybrids. It wasn't particularly out of curiosity. It was because we could prove that they were captive bred. Yeah, necessity. Yeah. And then even, I mean, there were a load of falconers who were more than sceptical about captive breeding. I can think of a few, most of them are dead now, who were saying, well, even if you breed them, you know, it won't be any good for hunting, you know, I don't know, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> And, and and there's a modicum of truth, you know, and IAS has to be taken through its whole learning development. Um, but there's no difference between a captive bred chick and a wild chick, you know, you've still got to train it and everything. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, there were was illegal taking in those days um, because people wanted birds and the price of birds went up. I mean, they discovered that Harris Hawks could catch things in America. And so um, people like John Bell Irving started to bring them into UK. And very soon they were about 1500 quid a bird, which wow. which in those days was a lot of money. Yeah. You know, you could buy a very nice car for that. Um, but captive breeding got going. And then um, I'm getting a bit muddled up on dates. I'm not really being very chronological, but no, it's no worries about that. One of one of the things was they started DNA fingerprinting, and Professor David Parkin uh, at Nottingham University started doing it with birds of prey, and we did some on the kite population. Um, and we found actually that the Welsh kite was very inbred, but there had been one German bird a few years back had got into the population and got some genes into it. But anyway, I got some money uh, from the Arabs and I co-funded with RSPB a study on DNA and we got it so that you could DNA fingerprint things like goshawks. Yeah. And that meant you could prove you were innocent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it also meant you could prove someone was guilty. Mm -hmm. And some people were guilty. Um, but gradually it all settled down. Prices settled down, supply and demand settled down. And at that time also, um, they introduced registration of birds of prey about, I think that was the early 80s. Uh, but after, I think, probably, probably at least two decades of registration, um, 
with the Hawk Board, we went to um, the government and said we wanted registration removed. I mean, it was costing me at that time over £25,000 a year just in paperwork. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it was costing me a member of staff's full time job. And, and so, how many birds of prey were you? Would that be? Well, in those days, I used to breed about three hundred falcons a year. Yeah. Um. So then, what? Uh, so the RSPB said, "Oh, we can't take registration off. It's going to be carnage out there. It'll be a free for all." But in fairness. Um, the government did take registration off for a lot of exotic species. Yeah. And nothing happened. <laughs> and, and a few years later, we applied for more. And again, nothing happened. So now um, you still have to register golden eagles, don't you? Yeah, schedule four, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah so eagles, peregrines, goshawks, sparrowhawks, kestrel maybe? No, 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 no. Not, most of those you don't need to register. And the okay. peregrine, theoretically, you need to register, but actually they don't ask for it. Okay. Now we have this Article 10 business. Yeah. To comply with Europe. Um, anyway, um, I won't go on about all of that, but one topical thing that falconers I know have been bang on about have been wild take. And in the early days, we had the British Field Sports Falconry Committee. And then in response to the 1981 Act, we had we, the, the Hawk Board was formed to represent falconers to the government. And I was on the panel which had to look at license applications yeah. to take peregrines and so on. And we had a quota, I think, of six peregrines a year. And, you know, you get this pile of applications and you know what falconers are like. There's all sorts of skullduggery. You get people saying, I don't own a bird of prey because he's put them in the name of his wife. Yeah. So that he can get a peregrine license. And then you'd find that only about half of the licenses were actually implemented. Um. And then things tightened up, but we got it so that um, in the 1981 Act, wild take was still possible. It's just at the moment there's a zero quota. Yeah. Okay. So the law's in place. Yeah, yeah. You can do it. And they do issue licenses now and then for conservation projects. And um, I think they've also issued licenses, you know, for killing buzzards and so on. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, uh, the, the problem with wild take is, and I was a wildlife inspector for many years, um, I was wildlife inspector for the last of the Welsh licenses to take yeah. And I went along to witness it. And um, the license was down in Pembrokeshire. Uh, so anyway, the bird 
and you know a similar thing it's got to be at least three chicks in the nest you've got to leave two behind and they don't give you the license until the chicks are already half-fledged and it's all a panic mm -hmm. uh the rspb went round all the landowners um and raised a stink in the press oh falconers taking our stealing our birds blah 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 a lot of bad press mm -hmm. anyway it was taken and the owner of the farm i got her to countersign the license and in those days we had a guy called robinson rspb i think it was we used to call him mad robbo i think <laughs> um he was their investigations officer. So he got onto this license and he claimed that the bird had been taken illegally without the landowner's permission. Mm -hmm. But I was the inspector and I said, yes, that's my signature and that is the signature of the landowner. And Robinson went down to the landowner and got her to sign. Well, what he did was he he put pressure on her and she denied that she'd given permission. Mm. But then when we compared the signatures, they matched. And I was the government inspector uh, and it all went fine. But they did that every damn thing best they could. Yeah. And it's again, um, people will try and oppose it. Uh, meanwhile, with captive breeding, we're producing surplus birds. I mean, the Middle East market is dead. Yeah. People are giving away male peregrines. Um, you know, it's hardly much point in going for a license and you can get perfectly good captive bred one exactly yeah i mean so uh someone like yourself you've you know and you've seen the difference between wild take peregrine um iases and captive bred iases i mean uh, they both come at the same time and have to be trained the same way i'm assuming under a good falconer there's no difference in the bird the way the bird's flown or the way the bird flies at all no, no, there isn't. Um, where there is a difference is if you've got a passage bird. Yeah. So, yeah, people say, well, I want a passage bird, you know. I dream about having a passage bird. Hacked birds aren't good enough for me. I need a passage bird. Yeah. Um, well, the point about a passage bird is you have to go out and trap it. And when it comes to something like a peregrine, that means a live bait bird. Mm-hmm. You ain't going to get a license to do that. Yeah. You just won't. So there is no point. So um, for the last 30, 32 years, um, I've been crow hawking. Yeah. And we have a group called the Northumberland Crow Falcons, and it's all done on horseback. Which, um, which, by the way, is uh, 
was the beginning of my interest in long wings was the vid- were the videos the Northumberland Crow Falcons because oh, it would ju- it less I mean for me still the epitome of falconry although I fly golden eagle the epitome of falconry is a dog on point on a Scottish moor and a peregrine kills a grouse is produced from my dog's point that's the epitome for me I've never done it and I'm sure one day that's what when I can no longer carry an eagle, I'm sure that's what I will be looking to do. But when I saw, started seeing that and then there was a young bird on there called Spitfire and I was just, I was like, wow, you can fly falcons, not like game hawks, not like, and it, yeah, it was absolutely what aroused me or turned me on to fly long wings, if I'm honest. So I'm to blame. You are, Nick, you are, Yeah. <laughs> From well, anyway, Spitty, he lived to be 15. He died of old age in the end. I've got him stuffed in the boardroom. Wow. Um, and he never got injured. And he flew at 450 grams or one pound. Yeah. And he'd take a cock pheasant. Anyway, um, point was to take a young cat-bred falcon and expect it to catch and fly crows well isn't that easy yeah and especially as i start hawking at the beginning of august so you've got to get those young birds on pretty damn quick Mm. and um so you know we try all sorts of things dragging dead crows behind the horses um kites balloons and all that kind of thing um but what I really wanted is a, a model crow that I could control. Yeah. So in the 90s, I wrote around to a few scientist friends that were into that kind of thing. And I told them, crow-sized bird, um, electric in, fan inside it so the falcon can't get hurt. Mm-hmm and so on but we couldn't do it in the 90s the technology wasn't good enough it's more clockwork stuff um but then um again about um i forget when we started eight or ten years ago uh we the, the technology did become available and to cut a long story story short we developed them robotic prey Mm-hmm. And that has opened a whole new door for me for falconry because apart from teaching the young falcons, I've learned a lot more about how a falcon learns. Yeah. How you teach it to do a teardrop vertical stoop. Because when they're young, they panic. They can't do a teardrop stoop. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't want to either. If you saw the ground coming up to you at sort of that speed, you'd think, Gee whiz, I'm not trying to that. Um, and yeah, you you know, you teach them to climb up till they're dotted in the sky. And you teach them what a crow looks like, search image. And so in the last few years, we've been training the falcons that way. And we've had much more success rate with the young falcons. And we've had um, better flights. You know. Yeah higher flights and that led on then to developing the hunt racing yeah 
um, which led on to, to Vowley. And now we're just taking five British teams out to Saudi uh, hunt racing. So there's 20 Falcons sitting at Vowley. Tom's on the plane at the moment uh, on his way to Saudi. And James is following on Friday, I think, with the Falcons. And we'll have five teams. Uh, John Dixon and his um, crew, uh, Roy Lupton and his crew, and um, Dave Whittingham. Yeah. And uh, Johnny Ames, I think. Okay. Uh, we'll have our own Falcons. Um, so we're going to show hunt racing to the Arabs. Because to get back to conservation again, the Hubara bastard has been hammered. Yeah. Um, and now at great expense, I think they're in various projects all around North Africa and Asia, they are breeding, I think, over 50,000, 60,000 Hubara a year. Wow. But it's all very well having a farm Hubara. It doesn't know how to fly. It yeah. doesn't know how to survive. Mm -hmm. It'll cost you at least 400 quid just to have a young Hubara in a cardboard box. Wow. You let it out and you've got to drive after it tooting your horn because it won't take off. Yeah. If it takes off and you slip a falcon, it'll just go like this. Falcon will fly up behind it, just grab it and then it comes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've tried managed hunting areas in the Middle East. And um, that's got major problems. The desert's been hammered so much now that um, overgrazed. Uh, so the Hubara just will never come back to the numbers it was. Yeah. Plus, although we've cured the falcon conservation problem, about 98% of the falcons now in the Middle East are captive bred. Uh, sorry, not in the Middle East, in the UAE. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's not the same in Saudi. Um, the the hunting areas just aren't there. I mean, it's, it's a lot of the places where I used to hawk and cities now. Yeah. Um, but meanwhile, we also did this UNESCO thing. Um, you know that falconry has been inscribed by UNESCO. Yes. Um, so in 2003, UNESCO came up with a new convention on intangible cultural heritage. I was asked to do the submission on behalf of the UAE, which was the lead country. And um, so we spent some years pulling together lots of different countries. And in 2010 in Nairobi, um, finally our submission was accepted by UNESCO. So now falconry is on the representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of mankind. Mm -hmm. And we did it on behalf of 11 countries and more have ad been added. Now we have 24 countries, falconry countries, recognised. 
Yeah. And, and what does that, in layman's terms, um, Nick, for people who are listening who are not into falconry, um, yeah. lots of my friends might be, you know, MMA fighters or something base yeah. jumpers, or what does that actually okay. mean? Okay, right. Say you're, say you're a fighter or a base jumper, mm-hmm. okay? When you finished, there's nothing there. What you did is intangible. Okay, it's like music, dance. It's so the pyramids and Hadrian's Wall, they're tangible, of course, yeah, but they're dead. Yeah. If you've got an activity such as falconry, such as base jumping, um, which involves a certain amount of skill, that is intangible. It's cultural and it's heritage. Yeah. Now the heritage, the difference between history and heritage, history is past. Okay. Battle of Hastings, 1066, finished, done. Yeah. Heritage is a baton. It's something that's passed from one generation to the next. When we were talking about mentoring, falconry is being passed from one to the next. It's what we pass on ourselves now. Yeah. Okay, so so if if your activity um, is uh, inscribed by UNESCO, the government of that country has to, um, it signs up to uphold that activity. And when you write the submission, You've got to say what the activity is uh, and how it's passed on. Yeah. You have to document it. We had to write a book, make a film, all sorts of things. Um, And it's been the biggest inscription. It's the biggest inscription UNESCO has. But it's not in Britain because we haven't signed up. is that a yet or is that looking like it's not going to or? OK, so I wrote to Jeremy Hunt, who was then Minister of Culture, and I did the same for the Minister in New Zealand. Um, New Zealand, Australia, Britain, Canada, America, USA, I mean, mm-hmm. they haven't signed. Lots of other countries have signed. Yeah. Including China and India, who have huge cultural activities, festivals and skills and craft skills. And I, uh, and Jeremy Hunt said, well, we can't define cultural heritage, intangible cultural heritage. Well, UNESCO has already defined it. Um, And I thought to myself, why haven't these countries signed it? What have they got in common? And when you look at it, Canada, USA, Australia, New Zealand, they all had indigenous people. They had the Maoris, the Aborigines, and the American Indians. Okay. But they were colonized by white people. And the white cultures predominated. So when I did festivals of falconry, I'd say, okay, guys, come in your national dress. 
And the Americans would say to me, we haven't got a national dress. We've only got baseball caps put on back to front. (laughs) 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 And if those countries did sign up, actually what they'd have to protect first is their indigenous culture. Yes, okay. And despite everything, that doesn't go down too well. Yeah. But what about Britain? Well, Britain, I'm an indigenous culture, but now um, we pride ourselves in Britain on being a multicultural society. Sure. Okay. Now, the problem with being a multicultural society is that um, on the one hand, you're trying to blend everybody together. Yeah. They've all got to come together. But the very act of coming together means you lose some of your culture. Yeah, of course. So there's a a tension there. Mm -hmm. In the cities, people bang on about race, gender, all sorts of different elements of culture. Uh, And they don't want to give up their this. They don't want to give up that. Um, So the Brits have been very reluctant to beat the drum for their indigenous culture. Yeah. Um, I know I'm treading on um, sensitive ground with this um, thing, but... uh, But I think it's... when you do tread on um, that, I mean, I'm my daughter's mixed race, so um, I have I represent lots of uh, multicultures in when I teach. I have lots of different cultures in my in my class when I teach. Um, but I think it's very important that you're representing uh, or you you're uh, attempting to support, uh, represent, and preserve certain parts of our culture we don't want to preserve parts of when we were invaded as vikings and we raped and pillaged certain saxon areas that's not what we're trying to preserve we're trying to preserve a cultural heritage that was a massive part of this country's um throughout um, at the point where it was once the falconry of kings and reserved only for royalty i mean that is a part of our heritage that should be reserved which impacts or doesn't detract from any other heritage that we try and reserve from other cultures. I think you put your finger on it there, Wesley, that somehow one has to, one has to um, support your indigenous culture and yet at the same time be tolerant to other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, but not to the point where you're ashamed of your background or your past. Yeah. Okay. So, so we haven't signed it. We do actually have a law about protected beliefs. Yeah. And if you Google protected belief, you'll find there's certain criteria. Uh, if you're, for example, um, a Sikh, under your protected belief, they couldn't fire you from your job because you want to wear a turban. Yeah. Okay. Anti-fox hunting has become a protected belief, would you believe it? Wow. 
So now with the hunting, we're pushing for hunting to be a protected belief. Yeah. So uh, recently, and you're an eagle man. Yeah. Um, they protected in Scotland their mountain hare, mm -hmm. which was a prime quarry for eagle flyers. Yeah. The Werity report was their sort of consultation document, and that was all about shooting, no mention of falconry at all. So there's been a kind of um, a protest about that, and we've had one hearing, I think, in April in the Scottish Parliament subcommittee, mm -hmm. uh, which a number of falconers, and I hope you, amongst others, put your, your sixpence earth in. Yep. Uh, and I put in um, I put in a submission, and they've asked me to come back to their next one, mm -hmm. which is on the seventh of December when I'm on a plane. So I'm going to have to try and do a Scottish parliamentary subcommittee submission by Zoom blue jeans on a plane which is going to be a new one for me yeah okay but anyway um belt and braces i've written to them as well yeah and that's going to be um recorded in their petitions website thing yeah. in case i can't make it but the point of what i'm trying to say is they, they didn't consider falconry at all uh, with the mountain hare thing. Falconry is not decimating Scottish mountain hares. No, of course. There were a lot of twists and turns in this thing. Um, but there is a clause in their legislation for social purposes. So I have written to them about the cultural elements of falconry within Scottish culture uh, and society. And I have asked them, and we'll see what happens, um, to allow falconry to continue for hunting mountain hares under the clause um, uh, of um, social purpose mm -hmm. because otherwise you're basically killing off um part of our cultural heritage yeah well the most the most traditional way to fly a golden eagle um in the uk 100 percent um also and what you have is despite all these efforts of reintroduction of links and all this sort of stuff you have now something that has very little predation uh, living throughout um, a huge wilderness of the Scottish uh, of Scotland, which they're just trying. It's literally just to cut back on shooters. It's not you're you're trying to control a sport because it's ruled by millions of pounds. But there seems to be very little logic. It's okay. Well, let's just put, you can't hunt them anymore. Then well, you can't kill the blue hair. But the the logic's out the window and we need to say to ourselves well okay so we've got other means of doing this we've got cultural stuff to to protect but also we need to think of disease and um 
that degradation to environment, you know, like, and all of that seems to be lost. And we have people like Chris Packham, who is in an amazing position to put forward these things. And he, and he promotes himself as someone who is very much, uh, uh, he wants to preserve natural England and, but you want to leave out a huge part of it where you're in a position where you could fully defend and represent what falconry or what taking prey with a bird of prey in this in this scenario would be, how beneficial it could be and how much of an answer it could be. But you're given such a big voice in such a big um, position in the BBC and you want to completely ignore that. And maybe that's his own choice and maybe that's his beliefs or maybe he's caught with bureaucracy as well. But unfortunately, because of the reach, the public fall for it. The public don't want to look and they get it in their heads. No hunting's bad. And it's because well, there's no opposition. Um, you you touched on it just now when you said lots of money. Um, there is the class thing. Now, um, I was um, scientific advisor to the all party parliamentary middle way group on hunting with dogs mm -hmm. before the hunting act and i had to make submissions to them um to the to the different committees and burns report and so on and as you know the hunting with dogs act to, was implemented in 2005 and all the science was thrown out the window I did a study on um, wounding rates in shooting foxes and published it in the Journal of Animal Welfare. I know the wounding that's involved of the other methods. Um, and hunting with dogs is extremely humane. It doesn't leave any wounded, nor does falconry. The reason it went through was politics. It was a payback time for the miners and it was the underlying thing is class class warfare mm -hmm. and this is what scotland's got at the moment the greens are in coalition and uh, they are very anti um estate owners and grouse moor keepers and all that kind of thing there's a certain element of of truth as there is in everything of course but Underlying all of this is class. Now, falconry um, is it, it embraces the whole spectrum of classes, mm -hmm. from from the lad with the ferret and all the rest of it um, to um, you know people that are out on grouse moors, the whole bit. Um, really you've got to sacrifice your time to be a falconer exactly yeah yeah um so uh while we're very woke over things like gender and race and all the rest of it at the moment class uh discrimination is it's fair game yeah it's there's no real taboo you can be against class now if you're so-called sort of at the lower end you have a chip on your shoulder about the upper end yeah and vice versa in a way but mainly it's that direction and some of the people that you've mentioned have a chip on their shoulder 
Mm. And that will flavour their attitude. And it will keep them it will keep them their job around the people who want them to say the right thing. Yeah. Controversy controversy gets a lot of people cancelled nowadays. Mm. And so, you know, sell out, say the right thing, even if it's not really what you believe. I'm not it may be what these people actually believe, but you protect yourself by saying what what these people want to hear. I mean, it's not to say there aren't any hooray Henrys around, because there are. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a lot of people. Well, I can't say it, and <laughs> but pompous. Yeah. You know, um, they're their own worst enemies, some of them. But equally, if you don't invest time and money into the landscape, I mean, over the years, whenever I've made a bit of money, I've tried to buy a few acres. That's how I've managed to get a farm. I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything at all. My father was a vicar. Yeah. Um, it's a free country, though. You can buy land. It's not a communist country. Yeah. You can go out. If you made some money from fighting or whatever, you can go out and invest that in a little patch of something and put treat sure. it in a way you'd like it to be treated. Yeah. Um, but there's other people who think, well, this is our land. We should be allowed to walk all over it wherever we like, um, which is fine in one way, but not if you're a ground nesting bird. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and so on. You know, you've got to you've got to be reasonable. And um, at the moment, there's been a private members' bill in in the Welsh Parliament for access to basically all all non-urban land. Uh, which means you could just walk over anybody's place, um, walking your dog wherever you like. Yeah, which, I mean, it's one of those... Um, so, I, like, I'm from a council estate in Bristol. Um, I was lucky that there was a guy that lived near me called Alan Flower, and he had birds of prey, and when I was 12 years old, my mum took me to him because I was obsessed. So I got lucky. Um, now, but from that, you know, I've, I've spent... Uh, Roy Lupton was one of my best friends, you know, like when I first got into Eagles, I used to live at Roy's a month at a time and Roy and I have been all over the world together. Like when I went and got my Eagle from Joseph, Roy came with me, you know, like all these things. He's one of my best friends. And then um, I fly up in Lincolnshire with some guys from Liverpool and we fly on huge estates near Sandringham and we fly with estates that are worth hundreds of millions of pounds because we've been allowed on in the it's not simply that uh, it, it, the fact that I'm from a council estate means nothing. I have a passion for falconry. I invested myself in that passion from an early age. And the gap is bridged between the, 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 the divisions because there's a passion there. However, when you have these dog walkers who say, and I have a lot of friends who, oh, I love the outdoors, love going for a walk on a Sunday, and they're walking their dog across farmland, you don't love the outdoors. You love the freedom to walk your dog. You're not thinking about, hang on a minute, it's the middle of spring and hare are having young in the middle of fields and your dog's running into it. Or you're not thinking about partridge or if the, the shoot that you're actually walking through might actually be a natural grey partridge shoot. It might not be a put-down bird shoot and you're scaring all these things and it's not actually the outdoors and nature you love. It's not anybody telling you, oh, you get off my land. That's what you enjoy. 
and perhaps the education needs to go a little bit further in if I'm going to walk my dog across this countryside, I need to understand a little bit more about the countryside that I'm letting my dog roam in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these are some of the problems. Um, I could go on about that for a long time because it's actually, there's lots of nuances to it. Um, but uh, falconry is pretty well classless. I've known all sorts of people from all sorts of direction. Up north, we hawk on, well, it used to be about 150,000 acres. Now we're down to less than 100,000 acres. Mm -hmm. And that we visit, we, we go to a farm, we meet and we hawk in that area that day. And then another day, it'll be another farm. And yeah. the farmers will come out on their quads and one thing or another. And um, we've never paid for our falconry. Yeah. We, we, we invite everybody to a barbecue in the summer, a barn dance kind of thing. And some of them say it's the only time of year that I get to see my neighbours. Yeah. You know, um, but they, they expect us to behave. Of course. We wear green coats, which is a tradition. And um, if anything's damaged, we have to come back and repair it. But that virtually has never happened. Um, uh, because, you know, the farmers know we'll be responsible because we're farmers and they know that um, they'll be watching out in the countryside. People are watching, but they want to see stuff happening. You know, because yeah, yeah, exactly. it brings the countryside alive. Mm -hmm. and, and we have people from five years old to 95 years old coming out. You know, kids on, on leading rain ponies. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of thing. Um, some of the time, not all the time. So, yeah, we need to get the younger generation and we need to get all the different classes and be out in the countryside, but do it in an organised way where you've asked permission and you fit in with the needs of the owner and the land. Yeah. It's not difficult. Well. No, it's not. And it, it's really not. And footpaths are clearly signed and stuff. And you have to, like, people get this idea that a footpath is because the landowner wants, oh, that's my land. Don't You should stay off that. You should stay off this. You should. But you. What people don't realise a lot of the time is sometimes the government are paying the landowner to preserve that piece of land for flowers or fauna or whatever it may be. There's a little strip of land that you shouldn't walk on because of conservation. It's it's funded for the better of butterflies or whatever the case may be. And lots of the general public don't get this. They just see, well, hang on a minute. No, why should I have to stick to this path? There's a massive great big field here. And they don't understand it's not the farmer saying, yeah, I don't want you on my land. It's simply, you know, it's a lot of it will be investment. There's a the farming, the farming's on his ass, as we know. And also conservation, those side of things, you have to educate yourself slightly more. Also, I think when you vote, you need to politically look at what it is that you're voting for. And if you really do enjoy the outdoors, Read some manifestos, see exactly what you're voting for. Does it protect the things that you actually enjoy? Are you or are you voting for the guy who makes you laugh the most on the TV? These all these things are things that the younger generation need to think about. Yeah, and engage with. 
I, I can give you a real life example um, very quickly because we probably want to finish the podcast. Yeah. But uh, at Vowley, you know Vowley. Yeah. Um, to the north, the fields immediately are neighbours to the north. Um, that's been bought by the Wiltshire Wildlife Trust. Okay. And uh, it is open to any anybody. So it's become a, a dog walking place. Yeah. So they just arrive in their cars, let the dog off and run around the wildlife reserve. Uh, next to it is some of our fields, the top end of the farm. Um, we have two fields which are now as wildflower meadows and we get a grant for it. Yeah. And I won't go into the ins and outs of all of that and lap wings and whatnot, but by April, I have to have that down to um, less than six inches, 15 centimetres. Yeah. But you can't get a tractor on those fields after October. So through the summer, I've had waist high wildflowers full of deer and hares and um, yeah, young pheasants. Um, uh, and so on, um, you know, a lot of small birds. But it broke my heart uh, last month that we had to cut it down and take the the wild dead wildflowers off and dump them, dump, dump it in the wood, uh, because I knew that within a couple of weeks the rain would come and we couldn't do it. And if I didn't do it by April, we'd lose the grant. Mm. So <laughs> you try to do your best, but there's some damn clause and somebody with a clipboard saying, if you don't do this, it's in the rules, you're supposed to do that. Yeah. <sighs> you know. yeah. Um, but meanwhile, then people from the Wildlife Trust they'll let their dogs come over into us. Um, and yeah, chase the, just like you're saying, chase the leverets. Yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'm used to being in a more rural location than Wiltshire. Um, I'm not used to having quite so many people around. Yeah. Uh, and the wildlife just can't take that kind of level of disturbance. Yeah. Sweden is fine. It's bigger, it's twice the size of Britain, far less people. Right to Rome is one thing there. Apply that to Bristol, apply that to Wiltshire, and you've got a problem for the wildlife. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I have some hunting ground not far from you, actually, up at Voli. And uh, you, you, I mean, they're big fields compared to what what I've got here, you know. And, you, you know, 50, 60 acre fields like are still not big are still not huge fields for nesting lapwing and stuff. You know, you still need a big area um, and people just don't get it. People, people don't get it. People think these things thrive. Oh, if you leave everything like they'll thrive, they don't in interference from people walking their dogs and stuff is a massive thing. Um, to bring us back to a lighter note before we leave then, Nick, your fault, your personal, personal falconry. Now, are you very much 
um, invested in the race. I mean, I was at Voli this year and watched Roy Lupton's expert display of how to fly a row crow into the ground three times consecutively, um, <laughs> which I love to bring up when I speak to him regularly. Um, but is this is this a lot? Is a lot of your falconry taken up with this now? This racing side of things, or do you get, still get out and do a bit of uh, traditional falconry? I've just been training Roy's birds for the last two months. Yeah. And I've just put a new tail on his male Jer Peregrine. And they're just about to be shipped. Roy, um, they've had avian flu in their area and they can't yeah. train. Um, but no, no, I, I, I hawk every year in Northumberland. Yeah. That's my hawking. I'm not a competitive falconer at all. The boys like to do it. Uh, and I'll, and I'll, you know, you might think, oh, well, he's set up Vowley, which is making a big loss, and I have to work out how to make it work together. Um, we'd like to build Vowley up as um, a hub for British falconry in all its different, where falconers can come and actually do um, Falconry Centre, Owlies. Yeah. Competitive. Went up. Your internet's gone a bit funny there, Nick. Um. You, I, I can, can you hear me? Yeah, I've got you back now, mate, I've got you back. Oh, oh I don't know where I was. <laughs> You're just, uh, Before your internet I... went a bit glitchy for a second there. Oh, well, anyway, um, yeah, basically, I'm not a very competitive, you know, that's not what it's about for me. I like to be out with the horses and the fells actually hawking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as anyone who's seen the DVDs or watched Northumberland Crow Falcons will see. I mean, it looks amazing. All that stuff off horseback does look absolutely amazing, um, especially compared to Vowley. It looks like a very different thing, of course. Yeah, you're breaking up there, Wesley, but um, I, I want to keep... What we do is we'll use GPS, we'll use walkie-talkies, Yep. We'll use cars to get us there. But when it comes to the actual hawking, I want it to be me, the horse, the falcon, the crow, the landscape, the wind. But I don't want lots of technology. Yeah. And I was quite shocked recently. I went out with a group with the British Falconers Club at Woodhall and they were thermal imaging everything. Mm -hmm. And... Rather than running pointers, they were just with the cars coming to a stubble field or something, thermal imaging it, and then either flying or not flying. And I was quite shocked. And then I thought to myself, well, why am I shocked? I use field glasses. Yeah. You know, I've got used to using field glasses. Um, I use a pointer. I have a Munster London. Yep. Very nice box. 
I love Mr. Landers. Um, but that isn't a wolf. It's a specially bred sporting dog. Yeah. <laughs> so where do you draw the line between artificiality and natural? Evolution, I guess evolution. Um, it's so I use a thermal imaging sometimes with my eagle because if I'm getting out for a quick hour after work, it might make the difference between one flight or no flight at all in an hour. Um, but when we go away and we have big meets, we have a, a beating line. And if we have the farmers and landowners, we have a beating line and we try and spot hair sat in rape or sat in stubble. And you spot one and you get one of the younger kids to flush it for you or something. And and there's my favourite style of hunting a golden eagle is walking through rape field and seeing one explode out from under your feet. And that, that's my favourite. Um, everything has to have its place, I guess. And it's the same with training you know row crows with falcons everything has its place and there is a slight evolution and hopefully though we maintain the the uh, tradition and history of the sport and hopefully pe people like yourself um will continue to be around to do that and pass that pass that on you know yeah i just um rewritten the book understanding the bird of prey I don't think you're supposed to plug things on a podcast. No, you plug away. I mean, I, I've just written a book as well, and I'm trying to get it published at the moment. So, yeah, you <laughs> plug away. Yeah, so anyway, um, I'm just bringing that out. I've just brought it out. Um, and um, it's about double the size of the original. Um, and it has a whole new chapter section on robotic prey and how to train with it and that kind of thing. Um, so, yes, if people are interested, um, that's now just come out. Perfectly in time for Christmas, Nick. I like it. Roy keeps trying to get me to fly a, a falcon at Voli um, every year. He's like, come and grab a falcon, come and get a falcon. So maybe next year you'll see me fly, fly a falcon there because it fits in perfectly with you know, it can be done in over before I get the eagle going. So it does keep nagging at me. So maybe you'll see me there. But other than that, mate, um, it's been a pleasure to to talk to you. Is there? A, you said about plugging. Is there anything that else you'd like to plug? Is there anywhere where people can go, like a website where people can follow your work and what it is that you do? People who, who don't know of it already. Well, I'm pretty rubbish at all of that kind of thing. <laughs> I keep thinking we should do some more with websites and social media. It's, it's hard enough just to keep websites current, you know. Yeah, it is. Um, we've been doing a load of work on Red Squirrel's reintroduction, uh, and I haven't got the time to to talk about it much. But, um, yeah, I mean, we are trying to make things happen at Vowley for people to come and um, we were very pleased this year a lot of young people came yeah um and see if we can develop falconry suitable for the modern world and i do understand that a lot of people love falconry want to do falconry realize they can't do falconry yeah but then go out with falconers exactly yeah you know um you don't have to be a falconer to go hawking and mm. i hope that more falconers can take out people uh we you know we have our members up north they carry a hawk they pick it up off the kill 
the end of the day, we put them on the hawking van and go home and they go to their homes. Exactly. Um, because they can't keep a falcon going and get it trained properly and all the rest of it. They know they can't, but it's a way of getting them out hawking. And like you say, young people flushing the thing out of the rake field or something. Those kids had a great day. They'll remember it. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, our days that we have, whether it's a corporate day or whether it's um, uh, a landowner's bringing friends out, lots of people. And we've had vegans come on our days hunting before and they're like, all day I've been cheering against the hair. All day I've been cheering against the hair. But they're like, eventually I wanted the eagle to catch one. They're amazing. I can't believe I... And it's amazing how people, vegetarians, vegans, and stuff, they come out, they've come out of us and they're like, it's so... I didn't realize how in favor of the hair it was, how sporting it was. I was like, exactly. You just hear hunting and you don't realize that the, the, the killing is the tiniest part of our sport. And it's the last thing we celebrate. Yeah. Everything else we celebrate well before killing. Um, one thing before you go, Wesley, if you come to Valley next year to fly. Yeah. Right, you're going to have to try doing some piloting. Yeah, I know. That's right? my trouble. Apart from the technicalities, you have to have a different mindset. Yeah. As a falconer, you've cheered on your eagle. Yeah. If you're the pilot, suddenly you're the prey. Yeah. <laughs> and you are shitting yourself. That, <laughs> yeah. falcon's, that falcon's after you and it means to get you. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't believe how, when I watched it this year, like, so much goes into it. You have to, when you're trying to keep that, those last 30 seconds, keeping that falcon away from that row crow. And then you see someone like Roy, who's, he was the fastest on all three of his runs and he puts it in the ground last second. He's literally got a second left of the race and he hits the ground and it's over. You've done it. You've, you've bummed it up. And I, that's what made me, I love things that are very challenging. And that, I watch it and I was like, oh yeah, I can see me getting into this. You didn't see his underpants. I think they were very moist. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen I've seen many moist, reluctant underpants. <laughs> but no, honestly, it was an, an amazing day, and uh, I was only there for the for the Sunday. But an amazing day, and as a weekend, it's going to be great. And it'd be great if there's a couple of them over the year, you know, like as opposed to just the one. But you're building something brilliant, Nick. I think uh, what you've done throughout Falconry is second to, to absolutely nobody certainly alive now um so what the things that you've done for falconry and the things that you continue to do and your openness to innovation and stuff is a testament um i think we'll get you back on at some point as well and we'll talk about other stuff like the red squirrel and stuff that you've done away from it because it has been a pleasure to talk to you and hopefully a lot of the people who listen will go and follow you on other things nice to talk to you wesley Thank you, mate. You just hang on there. I'll say goodbye to you separately. I'll just stop the recording.